Did you know prior to our research that we had uh, had a Vietnam War before the Vietnam War? I did not. And especially not one that is not just a comparison that we would make, but like a canonical, frequently made historical war that was nicknamed our first Vietnam. Like that is the nickname of the war, which is wild. Yeah, it's, it's not just uh, me being cynically flippant as usual. I mean, it is that, but it's other things too. My name is Reagan. My name is Jesse. And we are coming to you from Washington, D.C., a genuinely cool city that was cursed by an angry witch to house the United States federal government. This week we are talking about how the United States colonized, genocided, and generally fucked up the archipelago that is the Philippines. The only time that I've ever heard it actually said out loud was in the Rudolph Shiny New Year. Did you ever watch that as a kid? No idea what that even is. Is that a, a New Year's film, but with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Exactly. Oh my god. The Christmas movie <laughs> Industrial Complex strikes again. One of these days, like, Jesse is going to be strangled in his sleep by the person who created Hall. Like, this, this man has done more to fight against Christmas movies, at least for the past year of my life. Me? Yes. I've watched an awful lot of Christmas movies with you for that to be true. Yeah, you were, he was cynical throughout every single one. I mean, how can you not be? Because they're Christmas movies and you just enjoy them. I don't, I don't understand you people with joy in your heart. <laughs> I, I, I was really shocked by how much he liked the Grinch. Seemed, it seemed to resonate for him. I disliked that one. I disliked it much less than I thought I would. I'm going to call that a win. So the Philippines. Oh yeah, should I, it's my turn to talk about that now, huh? Yes, please, please tell us about the Philippines. Okay. Oh yeah, we're. I guess we never even mentioned that we're talking about the Philippine-American War yet explicitly, huh? We just keep saying the Philippines. Yeah, because we did really we fucked over the Philippines prior to and long after the Philippine-American War. So. But I do. I do want to give the war its due. We. It was. It was a really fucked up war. Incredibly brutal. One of the worst things the U.S. military would do until, well, in this scale, not till Vietnam. So history of the Philippines begins around 900 A.D., which is not, of course, because things did not happen the 
before then, but that is when the written record begins. So basically, the Philippine archipelago had hundreds of years of city-states and small kingdoms that were constantly interacting with each other. And the cultural hub of influence was, at least around that 900 AD time, from Indonesia, through which a heavy like Indian reference point was brought in and Indian culture, um, which is why leaders in the Philippines were for a long time. Many of them in some place, in many places were called Baraj and other Indian terms. There was also uh, some Chinese influence uh, that began around 1000 AD. And so Filipino culture had strong influences from those two civilizations. And then the next big influence prior to colonialism uh, on the islands was around 1400 when Islam spread, uh, particularly to the southern islands. These people would later on become known as the Moro people. And they are maybe some of the fiercest resistors of colonialism ever and had a near unbroken 400-year fight with colonial powers and never really lost. And the reason I don't include Islam in the colonial portion uh, is primarily that, based on my kind of weak understanding, Islam primarily spread in Southeast Asia through traders as opposed to direct colonialism. So they have the merchant part, but uh, like we did, but the armies never came. I'm sure, uh, you know, those merchants were lobbying for it, though. Anyway, in 1521, Magellan uh, makes it to the Philippines. He immediately gets killed there by... Who is Magellan? Magellan is an explorer from Europe who is often credited for completing the first circumnavigation of the world, uh, even though he did not make it because he got, he got killed in the Philippines. Filipinos won, colonizers zero. Uh, unfortunately, that score will change. About 40 years after that, the Spanish conquest of the Philippines begins. Uh, this is in 1565, and it's pretty much complete by 1600. That Spanish conquest of all of the islands of the archipelago, or really many of the islands, because there's hundreds of them, so they definitely didn't actually have influence over all of them, and they never had much of an influence over the southern provinces. Uh, where Islam was the most prominent. But that unification, basically, under Spanish rule is where the Philippines as a single political entity really comes from. Uh, before that, it really was just different kingdoms uh, and city-states. There was, under Spanish rule, probably around five to ten revolts a century for each century of their rule. Um, and that's not counting, of course, the fact that there was just constant fighting and skirmishes with the southern islands, who they never got under control at all. For the purposes of our timeline, uh, the first major, the first revolts that we're going to talk about are the ones that happen in the early 1800s. We've mentioned a few times the Spanish-American independence movement in the, that took place starting around the 1820s and the impact that that had on other Spanish colonies, such as Mexico, 
Actually, we might not have talked about that because that might also have been from our non-existent episodes. I'm just going to each episode talk about the episode we never... The episode (laughs) that you will never get to hear. It's going to become legendary and then we'll release it. Well, we'd have to finish it. Yeah, we would have to finish it and then release it maybe as like a bonus episode. People would be like, man, this is shit. No, we're going to rape and kill it. (laughs) It would have been a great episode. It's just that the topic doesn't quite fit. Anyway... Don't don't make me get on topic. 1823. I don't know if it's exactly in this year, but around this in the 1820s, as a result of these. Oh right, we were talking about the Spanish American revolts because as a result of those uh, revolts towards independence by the Spanish American colonies, the there were some policy changes from the Spanish crown, in particular that peninsulares, basically people born in Spain the highest caste order were shipped over to take over for high-ranking Creole officers. Um, Creole being people who were descended either from my understanding at this point is that it's basically of some or little mixed race, but native to the islands for some amount of generations. Is that? That is correct. Thanks. Anyway, the uh, Creole officers in the military were, of course, not thrilled. And uh, there was a little revolt that lasted about a day called the Novales Revolt after one of the main people in it. The Novales Revolt uh, only lasted a day, but the underlying sentiment was still there and only became more intense when, five years later, uh, civil officials that were Creoles were starting to get replaced by peninsulares as well. And so in 1828, there was a conspiracy headed by two brothers, the Palmeros, to seize the government. And it didn't actually take place. The Spanish found out before the plan could be put into action. But the Spanish government was so concerned about the situation and so concerned about how popular the Palmeros were that when they discovered the plan, they actually suppressed it entirely. It was never made public. And they just kind of were like, nothing is going on. There is no war in Bossing Say. There is no war in Bossing Say. But of course, this dissatisfaction with the Spanish control, uh, as had basically what you can really call a dissatisfaction of a group of people living in one place being governed by a group of people very far away, resulted in dissatisfaction. And over the 1800s, dissatisfaction grew. You saw it erupt. It erupted twice in the 1820s and would come in again a few decades later with Gomberza. Indeed, it would. So fast forward from the late 20s to the early 70s, and you have in February of 1872, three priests who collectively were known as Gomberza, which was an amalgamation of their three names are publicly martyred basically for their speech against colonialism. They are executed, and this ends up invigorating nationalist sentiments within the Philippines. So you see, after the Gumbersa martyrdom, a number of nationalist groups popping up with various different strategies, the most significant for this podcast of which being the Katipunan, who were a revolutionary group that disavowed pacifism. So 
So they were the, by any means necessary, anti-colonial group, the Kathy Konanen. They are started after this martyrdom in the 70s, and they have years of increasing revolts and an increasing number of independent skirmishes. And 24 years later, in 1896, the group that has arisen from this, the Katipunen, begin taking settlements, which officially is considered the beginning of the Philippine War of Independence. This is when the revolution starts, and it, it was this group, the Katipuneros, who were, who were really on the ground taking back settlements from the colonizers. And meanwhile, back in the United States, just to give a little bit of an update, American trade is currently a billion dollar industry, and it is the most lucrative in the world behind England. And they are currently particularly interested in China. So just keep that in the back of your minds that the second wealthiest trade group being the United States in the world is currently looking towards China, which, you know, you're thinking, oh wait, late 1890s, the past couple of episodes have all taken place in the late 1890s. And you know what? The United States is kind of branching off into some islands. We've talked about Hawaii and now we're talking about the Philippines and those are all getting us increasingly closer to China. It's kind of funny how uh, when military planners, or not military planners, but when people, imperialists in general, start talking about these places, they all refer to them in our research as being like the key island for opening up trade with China. Like, this is the most important one. Like, if we don't have this, we're not going to be able to do it. Um, but there's always somehow another island that we need, or another set of 7,641 islands that we need to uh, make sure we can trade with China. What a coincidence. So, it should come as no surprise to anyone who has listened to our last episode, the events that come next. So, in 1898, those who remember from our last episode know that in January, Teddy Roosevelt does a little baby coup of the Navy while his boss is off at doctors, and he tries to start a war. And one of the things that he does is he sets the Navy to have unlimited recruitment, and he tells everyone to prepare for war in both Cuba and the Philippines, even though at the time, everyone in the United States was just really talking about Cuba, not the Philippines. Uh, and this was a part of strategy that... Teddy Roosevelt and a number of folks in his ilk were advocating at the time to try and crush Spain from all angles at once. So this happens in January. In February, the USS Maine explodes itself by mistake, and everybody blames Spain. Meaning that in April, as a part of the strategy, again, being pushed by folks like Teddy Roosevelt, that they should hit Spain at all sides, when the United States declares war on Spain, 
It doesn't just go to Cuba. It also sends a man named Commodore Dewey to the Philippines. So at the same time that our whole last episode is happening, on the other side of the ocean, you have Commodore Dewey arriving in April of 1898 and bringing U.S. aid to the Capucineros. And he promises them independence in return for basically joining forces against Spain in the war that they have now been fighting for the past two years. And they kind of evolve a dual strategy where the United States has all of our boats on sea and all of the freedom fighters are working on land against Spain. And at the time, Emilio Aguinaldo, who we'll keep coming back to, he was in charge of the Cataconeros and their organization and the Freedom Fighting Army. He says, regarding this strategy and the American aid that has come, quote, the Americans, not for mercenary motives, but for the sake of humanity and the lamentations of so many persecuted people, have considered it opportune to extend their protective mantle to our beloved country. When you see the American flag flying, assemble in numbers. They are our redeemers. So this was a communique that he sent down to the rest of his troops and basically tells them, hey, the Americans, they're really good hearted. They are our friends. Shortly afterward comes in the beginning of May, the Battle of Manila Bay. Very important, but we're not a military history podcast, so we don't care. In June, Aguinaldo officially declares independence from Spain. He establishes a government, he sets his declaration of independence, and the constitution of the government actually begins with the words, quote, under the protection of the powerful and humanitarian nation, the United States of America, and then proceeds to talk about this new country that they are founding called the Philippines. So it's amazing how good our propaganda has been. Like, there's a little, it, it actually makes me think that Trump is the perfect apex of, like, American empire in that, like, we just put our name on, we're like, our name is so good, we're incredible, we're here for freedom. Don't look at what we've done. Uh, our propaganda machine, though, just unabated continues. We are here for freedom. It's, we hadn't even done any good shit with our military yet. All it had been for is for murder. And yet, the myth continues. I actually just finished reading Hannah Arendt's On Revolution, and in it she talks a lot about the United States and the way that its founding and its constitution together are so mythologized for us as a country by comparison to how they are in other countries. And it, it forms such a chunk of our national identity and the the way that we show ourselves to other countries. I am not at all surprised that someone who had been fighting for two years, leading this rebellious organization, fighting for his life, would see the Americans who had previously done a war that was technically anti-colonial coming and saying, hey, we just really hate the Spanish, so we decided we would help you. And being like, these are the people I heard were the freedom guys. And I'm going to say that they are a powerful and humanitarian nation as part of the first 10 words of the Constitution I'm about to write. 
just because I love them. I'm going to make our new national flag red, white, and blue in honor of them. Because they're great. Because they told me so. And I'm really tired. And I don't have the time to check up on it. It's propaganda that we put out that as much as we talk about other nations like propaganda, boy, the stuff we put out would make the Kim family blush. Here, here. So this is all happening in June of 1898. We've got the government made. Everything looks like it's going to be good. And then in August, so two months later, you have what's known as the Siege of Manila, where basically Spain wanted to surrender, but they didn't really want to surrender to the Philippines because for reasons we've discussed previously, they, they were racist because they were racist. And so they basically go on this siege and they surrender Manila, the capital city, to the United States alone. The United States, the quote, powerful and humanitarian nation, the place that is here to do anti-colonial activism, responds by locking the Philippine Army of Liberation out of the city of Manila, where Spain has just surrendered to the U.S., and declares that the Filipinos, quote, must recognize the military occupation and authority of the United States. So basically they were like, just yanked the rug from right under this entire army that they had been best friends with 10 minutes ago in order to have this like barely a battle siege and then have Spain surrender to the United States. And let's be clear what this really is. This is effectively a declaration of war. Oh, absolutely it is. They have decided that now that they are done with Spain, they are going to occupy the Philippines militarily. And if the Philippines don't like it, then they're going to have to fight against the Americans. Even though, you know, the Philippines have been fighting for much longer in this fight, they have, we'll, we'll discuss all of this later. The point is they were at a disadvantage. Yeah, and also it's, it's their homes of where they lived. And uh, yeah, we came over and said, you're ours now, and if you disagree, we're going to shoot you. And boy, did we shoot a lot of them. We truly did. But not quite yet. No, there was, uh, you know, that period where you have to pretend you, you have good intentions, uh, and you hope the other side, inevitably, that you've got your, your foot down on, uh, bites back. And that, at that point, uh, you get to say, they did it first. Yeah, we were still looking for an excuse to start violently repressing the people we were about to colonize. And at the time, we didn't have what we considered to be a good excuse. But that didn't stop President William McKinley, who attended a conference to determine the fate of the Philippines now that it was under U.S. military occupation uh, two months later in October. And uh, on the subject of determining the fate of the Philippines, he said, this is one of his more famous quotes, and it's kind of a long one, but I think you'll appreciate having it. So, William McKinley says, in a speech on the subject of the Philippines, I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight, and I am not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one thing. 
And one night, late, it came to me this way. One, that we should not give them back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. Two, that we could not turn them over to France or Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. Three, that we could not leave them to themselves. They were not fit for self-government. Four, that there was nothing left for us to do but take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. So here we have the quiet part being said loud, that there are financial, commercial stakes to this. And so then the conclusion must be that we have to colonize them and we will use religion and civilization, whatever the hell that means, as our justification for doing so. Despite the fact that a good number of these people were Christian because they had previously been ruled by Spain, but they were the Catholic type of Christian. So that doesn't count. They still need to be like re-Christianized by American Protestant capitalism. Not for nothing, the subtitle to Rudyard Kipling's uh, famous poem, The White Man's Burden, is The United States and the Philippine Islands. Yes, it is indeed. And let me tell you that it is still just as much bullshit as it was the day he wrote. So, following McKinley's decision to Christianize a group of already Christian people, in December they signed the Treaty of Paris, which you will remember is the treaty that gave the United States basically the ability to colonize Cuba without actually colonizing Cuba. And it also gave them the opportunity to buy the Philippines for $20 million without consulting a single Filipino. Aguinaldo, who at this point is in charge of the Filipino government, offers a counter-proclamation because, you know, he wasn't invited to the Treaty of Paris because he wasn't surrendered to because the Spanish are racist. And he establishes another government, this time a republic, so it would look a lot harder for the United States to be fighting them, and he became the president. And in the coming months after this happened, thousands of people would flee Manila. So right here you have the United States purchasing the Philippines and everyone who lives in this area just getting the fuck out of the town. Out of sheer fear and the, the terror of being colonized. And this lasts for about two full months, a little less than that, until February, very early February of 1899 when the tensions bubble over into physical fighting between the troops. Uh, two United States soldiers encountered a group of Filipino soldiers in the Manila suburbs as they were each patrolling the area because this was disputed territory. And one of the Americans ordered the Filipinos to halt, and the Filipinos responded by ordering the Americans to halt. And the Americans then responded by shooting them and yelling out to the other Americans, quote, line up, fellows, the N-words are here all through these yards. And after this, the first Philippine Republic responds by declaring war on the United States. So 
here we have exactly what Jesse was talking about earlier. So all of this was happening on February 4th. You have the Americans shooting at the Filipinos and then the Philippine Republic declaring war. This all happens on the day of February 4th. On February 5th, the very next day, you have the bloodiest battle where the United States loses a full 238 people and also kills thousands of Filipinos. Admiral Dewey, who had once been seen as a liberator who was helping Aguinaldo with all of the land stuff by taking care of the seas, starts firing 500-pound shells into the trenches where the Filipino army was hiding and killed so many people that the bodies were piled so high that the Americans were able to hide behind them as cover. And one British witness who was there recounted the scene as, quote, this is not war, this is simple massacre and murderous butchery, which I would argue is synonymous with war, but I digress. Part of the reason why they were able to have just this absolute massive advantage from the start was the distinction in weaponry between the United States military and the Filipino military. So the Philippine Liberation Army, or at this point, the Army of the First Philippine Republic, has very few usable guns and even less ammunition. So one third of the Filipinos who are out there fighting have no guns at all. And so they're making do with a lot of other things, like one unit had spears and another one had bows and arrows. And one was a group of children throwing stones. So there's also that. Um, but it was really hard to access any weaponry for them. So not only were they really cash strapped from years of colonization, but also the United States had a blockade around the Philippines and they didn't really have a lot of resources, financial or physical because of all of the years of colonization. So even if the Philippines hadn't been blockaded by the US Navy, it still would have been really difficult for them to get anywhere close to on par with what the United States had military this time in terms of resources. And they had also never had their own army before um, because they had been under Spain's rule for like hundreds of years. And most of the people who would have had combat experience died in earlier revolts, like there was an 1896 revolt or the 1898 war. You know, you had like other battles and, and they were incredibly fatal for the Filipinos because of all the previously mentioned things. So while the United States had a bunch of expertise, given that they were just coming off a series of battles to colonize indigenous Americans on the mainland, and also because they had just come off the Civil War, and you had a couple people who had previously been serving in the Spanish-American War before this, you had a number of different places where they were getting a lot of expertise and also not dying, which was not something the Filipinos got to benefit from. Yeah, the deaths of the Filipinos in their guerrilla wars against the Spanish and Spanish brutality and repressing them resulted in, you know, really highlighting this, a leadership core among the Filipino army that was incredibly young. Aguinaldo at this point was only 29 years old, so he was younger than half of this podcast. So again, just a reminder, February 4th, the war begins. February 5th, you have the bloodiest battle. And then February 6th, the treaty to annex the Philippines passes the United States Senate by one vote. And part of the slim margin can be attributed to a lot of on-the-ground organizing, 
So this is a really cool thing that I found. Um, there were a lot of groups, like for example, the Central Labor Unions of Boston and New York that held massive meetings. Um, the Central Labor Unions held a really, really big one in New York against the annexation. You also had the Anti-Imperialist League at this point still working, and they circulated more than a thousand pieces of literature against taking the Philippines. And there were a lot of local chapters of the Anti-Imperialist League that were holding meetings all over the country and writing letters to their Congress people and all sorts of stuff like that, opposing the war. However, they didn't end up succeeding. They didn't have that left unity that everyone's talking about. Um, labor was really divided because there were some folks who wanted the economic advantage that could come from the new markets. And there were some who hated the idea of capitalist expansion and violence. And so you had these two kind of competing interests within labor factions. And as a result, as Howard Zinn puts it, quote, labor could not unite to either stop the war or to conduct class war at home. So it was kind of impotent at this point. The Anti-Imperialist League, as we talked about last time and the time before, is kind of in its death rows. And so the United States ends up passing its treaty to annex the Philippines. And soon you will see a number of other death knells of the anti-imperialist movement in this country, unfortunately. The next month, in March of 1899, the United States takes the capital of the Philippine Republic, Malolos, and between this point and the coming December, so between March and December, Aguinaldo would be forced to move his capital three more times. So he has to pick up from Malolos and go somewhere else, and then he can sit there and go somewhere else. And he does that three more times until he's finally run up into the mountains in the coming months. Um, and so between March and December, that's basically what the United States strategy is, is just to like find the capital and take it over, find it again and then take it over. Uh, and then in December of 1899, you have Aguinaldo taking up a new strategy, which was basically to do guerrilla warfare until the upcoming U.S. elections, because as we all know, the elections happen every four years, so William McKinley was up for re-election in 1900. And his plan was basically to do guerrilla warfare until the United States has its elections and just hope that the anti-imperialist candidate wins. Uh, one of the ways that he did this was by tapping into Black anti-imperialism back in the States and also within Black regiments of soldiers. So I have a bunch of quotes here to talk about what black anti-imperialism looked like at the time. It was really, really cool. Uh, you have the senior bishop of the AME church for like the whole country calling the war in the Philippines an unholy war of conquest. Uh, one black soldier on the ground, meanwhile, recounted how a Filipino boy asked him, quote, why does the American Negro come to fight us where we are much a friend to him and have not done anything to him? He is all the same to me, and me all the same to you. Why don't you fight those people in America who burn Negroes? And then, um, finally, there was another soldier who has a quote here, and he was writing at the time of this, um, stating that, quote, our racial sympathies are naturally with the Filipinos. They are fighting manfully for what they conceive to be their best interests. 
but we cannot, for the sake of sentiment, turn our back on our own country. So there was, uh, and there, there were a couple other quotes that I didn't include, but that was kind of a common theme of anybody who was siding with the imperialists was kind of doing it begrudgingly. We've talked before about the kind of dynamics that bring a person to join the military anyway, the, the financial reasons, and at this time there was also a lot of a lot of racial reasons um, why why folks would be would be interested in joining the military and potentially getting good good quality jobs that they couldn't get elsewhere from it. I was just wondering if you could explain that a little more in terms of like the, those reasons, because I think especially the financial reasons weren't as good because pay was much less secure and uh, good than it would become during later era army. But it was a big thing that. A lot of uh, black men saw the army as a way to prove that they were like good patriotic Americans. They tragically thought that the white population of the United States gave a shit. <laughs> it was a pretty severe miscalculation, and it it's one that a lot of you know black soldiers, especially with the extent to which uh, Filipinos were probably most frequently referred to as the N word, must have been not thrilling to hear, uh, especially in light of race relations in the U.S. at the time, where just a year before this war, there's been the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, which is where 2,000 white men in Wilmington, North Carolina, went to the government, killed at least 60, probably a few hundred people, and said, we're in charge now. And uh, nothing happened, aside from the rest of this white South going, oh, we can basically do this too. Um, and so you're seeing, like, in the United States, basically, the, the complete collapse of any sort of uh, remaining benefits from the Reconstruction era, while simultaneously these soldiers are now going to fight against people who they're who are getting called the same slur that's used for them. Mm-hmm. And those people had knew exactly that those conflicts arose. It was a really common tactic for the Filipino rebels to address themselves to what they would call the colored American soldier in posters and use those poster campaigns to just put up pictures of like lynchings back to us and to ask them not to serve the white imperialists against what they consider to be other colored people. And so they 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 really were trying to play on those basically to feed the anti-imperialism because at this point their strategy was just to kind of hang on until the election of 1900. And in order to do that, they were using every tool they had in their belt. And yet, to an extent, it was working. This had uh, what was considered to be an unusually large number of black troops deserting, and even one man who full-on went ahead and switched sides. He came to fight with the U.S., and then he immediately switched over he came over to fight alongside the United States and ended up switching sides to fight against the United States. It was absolutely fascinating and definitely not something you commonly see in wars, except, you know, Vietnam. Yeah. Somewhere in here also, there's a good, uh, probably like history PhD thesis on uh, a comparison of Buffalo soldiers to the Buffalo soldiers to African-American soldiers in the Philippines that I will never write, but I would be interested in reading. If it doesn't already exist, half the time I say these things, and, like, if you look, like, somewhere someone has already written this, and I was too lazy to look. 
And while this is all happening, in the United States, I've pulled a couple of quotes for you all, just throughout this process, to hear a little bit about how folks who were not actively anti-imperialist were hearing about the war, in what was happening in not the black press or the anti-imperialist press, but just the regular press. The San Francisco Call described the land of the Philippines as, quote, tribute well won for valorous deeds. That was actually the title of the article that they ran. <laughs> Meanwhile, the commoner of Lincoln, Nebraska, released a critique of another newspaper, the Houston Post, for its coverage of the Philippine War. I picked this one because it was a twofer. And they wrote, quote, the Houston Post suggests that we have captured the Philippines from Spain, purchased the Philippines from Spain, and fought for the Philippines with the Filipinos. The Post overlooks the fact that, in addition to capturing the Philippines, purchasing the Philippines, and fighting with the Filipinos for the Philippines, we also had the Philippines thrown into our laps by Providence. It would seem that the Philippine Commission should try to impress all of these facts upon the minds of our Filipino subjects. And finally, Alabama's Age Herald reported under the headline, Our New Colony, the Philippines, that, quote, when the United States freed Cuba, it saw that it must have the Philippine Islands also, not so much because it wanted them, but so that it would deprive Spain of a chance to attack us. So this one is actually making the argument that we had to do colonization defensively, <laughs> which is just a funny idea to me. Also, the idea that the United States freed Cuba and the open admission that it now had Cuba and it just must have the Philippines also. All of those things, that one is my favorite. Uh, basically, to sum it up, if you weren't in the anti-imperialist press, if you weren't reading the black press, you were not hearing about the bad parts of this war at this point. You are just hearing about our brand new Philippine colony, and you are hearing about how great it is and how natural it is that we have it, and that everyone who opposes it, including the Filipinos, is just dumb and bad. So, fast forward to the next year. In 1900, you have an election happening in November, and Knowing what you now know about the kind of news that the average person was reading, it's pretty easy to know where it ends up going. Basically, the election of 1900 is the final death knell of anti-imperialism in the United States. William McKinley runs, and he actually changes his vice president, so now it can be Teddy Roosevelt, who has, since he left to fame after claiming to conquer a hill in Cuba, just cemented himself in the American mind and become the vice president. He is running alongside William McKinley, and just about the only political thing uniting them is that they just really, really, really want an empire. And they are running against William Jennings Bryan, who stated in the part of his platform that he wanted to free the Philippines. So this is exactly what Emilio Aguinaldo has been hoping for. He has been hauled up in the mountains, doing guerrilla warfare for like nearly a full year at this point. People keep dying. This is a really difficult, costly kind of warfare. 
the United States is pretty bad at finding them, which is really nice. We'll come back to that later, too. But he can't keep doing it forever. And so his main hope has been that the Democrats, who at this point are positioning themselves as the anti-imperialists, will win. They actually, uh, in the party platform, call the war in the Philippines, quote, a war of criminal aggression born of greedy commercialism. And the official stance of the Democratic Party was that no nation can endure half Republican, half empire. Imperialism abroad will lead quickly and inevitably to despotism at home, which is a pretty rich sentiment coming from a group of people who were in favor of capturing and enslaving other people like 10 years earlier. But if even the slavery party thinks you're being despotic, I think that says something. Let's not give the Democrats too much credit just because. For instance, in the 1898 Wilmington insurrection, it was a democratic government that was installed. <laughs> they're, they're also very much uh, white supremacists. Yeah, I, I see it more as like, well, if these guys are saying you fucked up, then you know you oh, fucked yeah. up. I wasn't worried about you <laughs> thinking something good about them. Just for the audience, I just want you to know the Democrats are still god-awful uh, human beings, by and large, uh, at this point. They just happen to be right on... On this one singular thing. Yes. Yes, they are, they are good at, at not wanting to be at war in the Philippines, and that is it. So, unfortunately, this does not work out at the ballot box. You actually end up seeing McKinley winning by an even bigger margin than the last time he ran which is a pretty huge blow to Emilio Aguinaldo's strategy. His, his whole deal is that he was just really hoping that McKinley would get beat in November, and here we have McKinley actually winning by more than he won by last time. So hugely bad situation for the people of the Philippines. Meanwhile, because McKinley... And his generals understood the strategy that Emilio was going for. He, Aguinaldo was not, like, particularly quiet about this. McKinley had, up until this point, told General MacArthur, who was in charge of the war, he had previously told General Arthur MacArthur, which is a stupid name, that he needed to steer clear of anything that might cost William McKinley the election, so they, they couldn't really do things that were too terrible to the Filipinos because it might incite the anti-imperialists. So they were kind of chilling back as much as the United States military could during this period of time so that the Filipinos didn't seem more sympathetic and McKinley could continue winning elections. Um, but now that he had won his second election, he issued a brand new set of orders to all of the troops back in the Philippines. This new set of orders included things like captured insurgents being summarily executed, that towns supporting the Liberation Army would be destroyed, which basically meant that every town in the north was just sent right into the incinerator. Like, they, they got to burn basically the entire north side of this country if they wanted to. Uh, and it also included staging a number of riots as well. So just in general, 
treacherous treatment uh, because, you know, now the gloves had come off. But there was still kind of a bigger issue uh, for the United States. They had all of these really, you know, terrible war methods and they were ready to summarily execute innocent people. But they struggled to fight against guerrilla warfare, something that I'm sure will never come up again in this podcast. But the United States military is notoriously bad at fighting guerrillas. Uh, one colonel described the army as a blind giant, quote, powerful enough to destroy the enemy but unable to find him. My only contestation is that the generalization about the American army being particularly bad. I, I think maybe I'm fearing that nation-state armies are constitutionally bad at fighting guerrillas. I will accept that revision. I, I would say that is completely true, especially because usually if you have guerrilla warfare, you have people who are fighting on their home turf. And quote right here from General MacArthur, which also talks about like, the fact that all the towns were aiding them. Uh, he put in his personal diary that I have been reluctantly compelled to believe that the Filipino masses are loyal to Aguinaldo. He, like, even the people who were running this understood that just, like, they, an army of the type that the United States had and still has is just not prepared for this kind of warfare. They can't find people. They can't, they can't get them out of towns that are supporting them. Uh, in the book that I was reading that was talking about this, they, they said that, you know, even the kids in towns would, like, strategically throw their ball in the window of the hiding gorillas if they saw troops coming. So even, like, the little kids were in on it. Uh, people would encode messages into their, like, haggling as they tried to get mangoes in the morning. It was all sorts of crazy stuff that people were doing to help out the gorillas. And at this point, they were doing so very well um, for the most part. But basically, the result of this is that the United States, unable to find the guerrillas and now having its gloves off, decides that it's going to take a page out of Spain's book and initiates a policy which it calls reconcentration. And for those of you who don't remember our last episode, reconcentration is a nice word for when you take all the rural populations give them little to no time to repair, and then haul them off to concentration camps where you watch them so they don't help the enemy, and also if someone is outside the camp, they are considered an enemy, and you're allowed to shoot any enemy you see on site. And also the camps are literal concentration camps, so a fuck ton of people die from disease and malnutrition. If you'll remember, the conditions within these camps were literally so horrible in Cuba that when the Spanish did it, the man initiating the policy was dubbed the butcher by the press, and they used his image to push for American entrance into the Spanish-American War. Meanwhile, the same newspapers had fuck all to say about our concentration camps, so there's that once again. Yep. You know, at this point, Americans still think of concentration camps as good things where you put brown people and not bad things were the Germans put people they didn't like. Exactly. It, it, you know, until we see the Germans do it, we had no idea it was wrong. Mm -hmm. We did have an idea it was wrong, though. We had oh, an that idea was... that it was wrong, and we used that idea that it was wrong to push us into war when war was profitable. 
But when the image of a concentration camp was one that might have stopped us from going to the profitable before, we can't we can't have that image around it. It's also interesting, this is just a little tidbit that I found, but all of this starts happening in November. So basically the United States decides that it's going to start its policy of genocide in November. And in response, uh, the, the elite of the Philippines gather together and they form a Federalist Party. And basically they're like, okay, all of we rich people here in the Philippines who are whiter and have been benefiting would like to please become a state out there in the United States. And uh, we, we are going to, we're going to, going to try and aim for that. So I thought that that was just an interesting little thing that, you know, there, there was also a class division in, in the wants of the people. And I kind of have Hannah Arendt also on my mind. She's got some other really good things to say about how the idea that there is such a thing as the people is frequently misused for the sake of despotism and that there is really no such thing as a cohesive people because people are divided along things like class. And so, you know, there is there is no way to know what the Filipino people wanted. Uh, the, the masses and the poor and the people at this point in, you know, in the villages that were being put into concentration camps wanted independence and the wealthy people wanted to join the U.S. in its trade with China. So I will leave those decisions up to you. The fighting continues for a couple more months. Again, this is November, December when all this starts happening. In March, Emilio Aguinaldo is kidnapped from his hiding place. He immediately surrenders and takes an oath of allegiance to the United States. Um, and this is followed by a series of high-ranking surrenders. And this basically kills the war on the mainland. The main island is called Luzon. Northernmost and most populous. I'm worried of saying Maine just because even at the most populous, it doesn't contain like a, even a majority of the people. The island that we spend the most time fighting. For what we in the United States consider to be the war. This was the first island and the island where most of the governing happened. And the war has, with Aguinaldo's kidnapping and his surrender and his oath of allegiance and all the other surrenders and oaths of allegiance of all the generals, that basically kills the war on Luzon. But the U.S. has other islands that it needs to colonize before it can officially say that it's got the Philippines. Yeah, I mentioned before that there's 7,461 islands in the Philippines. But of course, the job isn't that difficult. They're not all populated. Only around 2,000 of them have people. Much easier. Much, much easier. But today we're going to be talking about three. And those are the three that the United States concentrated its acts of genocide on. And do have the vast majority of the population. And also have the vast majority of the population. So one example, the island that the United States moved on to after it finished its warring on the island of Luzon was Samar, which was the third largest island, and it still had a lot of nationalistic sentiments. So by this point, when Aguinaldo was kidnapped, you know, a lot of people who had been put into concentration camps or their villages had been raised, or they had 
you know, lost all of their crops because the United States was a big fan of destroying fields and that caused a lot of locust infestations. All of the terrible, tragic things were basically wearing down the population. So it was harder for Aguinaldo to get support at this point. The nationalism on the on the island of Luzon was dying, but it was still pretty active in Samar. And the United States, after Aguinaldo's kidnapping march, starts making its way through Samar, and by May, they kind of figure out that the nationalist sentiments are not at all broken down. They're basically going to have to start back from the beginning with where they were on the last island. And MacArthur, who is still in charge and not happy about this, orders, quote, drastic measures to, quote, clean up Samar as soon as possible. So this included things like burning crops, building and filling more concentration camps, uh, and also hunting gorillas on trips known as heights. Where gorillas most likely means anyone they saw. Anyone they saw over the age of 10 also. The, the, the bottom age was 10. And they weren't checking IDs. So given what we know about the behavior of U.S. troops towards other populations that they weren't supposed to be shooting at all, you can be sure that like very young children were being shot and then classified as gorillas. Not the first time the U.S. would kill children and then say that they were killing soldiers. Not the first or the last. Yeah. The last was probably, like, yesterday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They'll probably do it again tomorrow. But anyway, unfortunately for MacArthur, while doing those things on Luzon had kind of killed the nationalism, doing those things on Samar did the exact opposite. The people got angrier and angrier, and they felt like they had nothing to lose. And one night, about 500 townspeople in the city of Balangiga, which I'm probably saying wrong, and I apologize if I am, launched a surprise attack on a U.S. camp and killed 45 soldiers. Uh, They call this the Balangiga Massacre, uh, which is a little bit ironic, considering how many times the United States had killed many more than 45 people. Uh, and also the fact that all of the people who were killed in this case were soldiers who were there to colonize and make war. So I don't know if it's considered a massacre if you are literally at war with the people who, who shot you, but I guess it's better for better for rhetoric. Well, they killed white people, so it's a massacre. Otherwise, it's just a slaughter. Oh yeah, that's fair. That is, that is, that is also very fair. Um, actually, if you go to the city of Balangiga now, they have a statue that's like in honor of the people who uh, who stormed the camp and killed the soldiers. Yeah, it's like sorry you lost the battle. Like to the <laughs> like the fact that we called it a massacre. It's like no, no, they they won a battle. Good job, them. Sorry, sorry, you sucked. Yeah, this was really this was just this was a battle. It's it's called a massacre, but really it's just a battle. Like you you were at war, you had declared war. And these were the people you were trying to colonize. And keeping in concentration. Like, the, the fuck do you think is going to happen? Exactly. That's what happens when you put people in concentration camps. Anyway, the United States were absolutely terrified by this basis fuck action. And their response was to create a commission to investigate the Balanjiva massacre uh, through widespread 
liberal use of torture. We love waterboarding people, as it turns out. Or just torturing people with water. Yeah, this this was like uh it was the, the torture method that was most commonly used was called the water cure, which was a precursor to waterboarding. I mean, I don't know if you even want to call it a precursor in that it's I guess it's a precursor in that they had to make something a little less horrifying than what this is. Yeah, the point of waterboarding is that it imitates the feeling of drowning, but you rarely actually drown. Whereas with the water care, you are literally just pouring water down people's throat and frequently they would have just died. Yeah. This is, whenever you hear people say, you know, that's not America, just know that this has always been, for instance, the U.S. Army. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's really disgusting. If you guys ever want to just feel horrible, Google the water care. But as they start, the guy who is leading the commission, General Jacob Smith, uh, is quoted as saying, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the more you will please me. And this was followed by orders that every male over the age of 10 who didn't agree to be put in a concentration camp would be executed. And that, quote, the interior of Samar must be made a howling wilderness. All armies are basically, like, collections of child murdering, mass rape and pillaging, like, people. And that has never changed to the present day. uh, Everything else is just propaganda. That's what people in this situation do. But... Yeah, just the extent to which we pretend the U.S. military is in any way different than... I mean, we we pretend that all militaries, to some extent, are, you know, generally pretty chill and not incredibly violent institutions meant to destroy. But it's it really is worth, like, picking up, like, these are the origins of the U.S. Army, all the things that we've been covering, all of these from the very start of, like, from the first big action we ever had, Massacre after massacre after massacre. Literal concentration camps. This is who our mil- this is who we are. This is who our military is, and that is certainly what our foreign policy always has been. Absolutely. Right around this time, I have a quote from I have a quote from Mark Twain, who was one of the leading anti-imperialists at the time. That there must be two Americas. One that sets the captive free, and one that takes a once-captive new freedom away from him, and picks a quarrel with him, with nothing to found him on, and then kills him to get his land. Yeah, and it uh, tells you something about the state of anti-imperialism and that, I believe, at the start of the war, Twain wasn't against it. Yeah, at the start of this, this war radicalized Mark Twain, and it, it made a guy who was friends with the author who wrote The White Man's Word. Like, they were friends, and and now he's out here talking about how we kill and pillage for land. Both written about the same war. Written about the same war. The same war that uh, Republican congressmen who toured the area at the time, or toured it the next year, my apologies, he stated that our soldiers took no prisoners. They kept no records. They simply swept the country, and wherever and whenever they could get a hold of a Filipino, they killed him. They were just indiscriminately assassinating, murdering, 
all of these human beings for basically no reason except that they wanted to colonize and the eventual conclusion of colonization is genocide. Yeah, I mean, that was because that was basically their orders. They knew that that was what the people in charge wanted. That's what military officers wanted. That's what the president wanted. That's what the president's party wanted. And that is, frankly, probably what most business interests wanted. Because once you clear out the native population, it's much easier to set up a peaceful training post so they could finally start doing deals with China, doing more deals with China. We didn't actually need it for China, but hey, it's helpful to have an extra port. Mm -hmm. The United States military will kill however many civilians it takes for them to get one more trading port every time. So all of this begins happening in May and July. McKinley sees that there has been a good amount of needless death and starvation and torture. And he says, this looks good now. And he hands the Philippines over to William Howard Taft to become something like a governor under a civil rather than a military government. And the transition from a military government to a civil government is for the United States in its process of colonization, how a war ends. So if you're not going to sign a peace treaty because you haven't surrendered or had someone surrender to you because you are just colonizing them, the way that the war ends is when the government switches from a military government and a military occupation to a civil government. Yeah, or I think what you're precisely what you're getting at is uh, your first mission accomplished banner. Yes. On July 4th, the 4th of July, 1901, <laughs> William McKinley basically was like, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. And now, because Jesse and I have decided to do a drinking game with this so that we can get our way through this horrible episode, we are going to drink. And we encourage you to do the same. Drink every time the United States says the war is over. All right, we're back from our tequila break. Now, remember that this was happening on July 4th, 1901. Coming up in 1902, nothing really happens until May when you have the Battle of Bayan, which is, like we said, we're not a military history podcast, not too terribly important for us. The point is, big battle, very important if you care about military history, results in the July 4th one year later declaration that the war is over this time by President Roosevelt. So they win the Battle of Bayan, and then the next, or two months later, Roosevelt says, no, no, now it's over. This time, this time for real. This is our first official declaration. I'll be honest, we kind of took the first one, in part because it's an unofficial declaration, but also because we were thirsty and it's a good bit. It is a very good bit. I, I think if you count up all the things that are technically ends to the war or declarations of the end of the war, the war gets ended like nine or ten times over the course of the next 13 years that we're at war 14 years. That's actually more Iraq than Vietnam. That is very true. Uh, mostly Afghanistan, honestly. <laughs> Afghanistan is the only war that we have been at longer than than this war, which will last 
until 1913. But right now we're still in 1902, specifically on July 4th, when Roosevelt says mission accomplished. One year after the last mission accomplished. One year after the last mission accomplished. All right, time to drink again. Time to drink again. We should have warned you. (laughs) And we're back. During the break, I invented a fantastic drink, and I am very proud of it. And I've named it the Pina Colonda. It was very good. I got drunk. On one sip. You got drunk on one sip of... I made a Long Island iced tea, but I made it with pineapple juice and coconut rum instead of regular rum. No, I got drunk on the second shot I took. Yeah, I didn't take the second (laughs) shot because I'm a baby. So, anyway. Roosevelt proclaims the end of the war on January 4th, 1902. And... That is basically, with the Battle of Bayan, the end of the United States war in Samar. That was when they take Samar. Uh, They've got a civil government there, too. They've done their mission accomplished moment. And they move on from Samar to the last island, and the island that will take the longest to conquer, the one that Jesse mentioned a little bit earlier, Moro Province. Yep. Fighting colonialists since 1560 or so. Moro province said fuck colonizers. A man named General Leonard Wood becomes the governor of Moro province on behalf of the imperial overlords back in the United States. And he basically has no patience for Moro self-government because under the Spanish, if you'll remember what Jesse said at the beginning of the episode, the Moros were basically running the government on their own. They had, like, their their little sultanate down there. And they had a little truce with Spain, for the most part. So they got to be semi-autonomous and have their own government. And within that own government, it was under Sharia law and a very particular kind of Sharia law that included having every individual carry a personal weapon at all times, for example. Uh, slavery and polygamy were allowed, things like that that were technically illegal in the United States, and there were a number of Supreme Court cases referred to as the insular cases that basically meant that the Constitution doesn't apply to our colonies, so they weren't too concerned about having slavery there because, you know, the Constitution didn't apply, but they were still very unhappy about the Moros governing themselves, and they used slavery as kind of an excuse to say that they were opposed to it for good reasons. So General Leonard Wood, the, the governor of Moro province, uh, basically meets with all the regional leaders uh, under the Moro government and announces that, quote, a new order of things has come about. A new and very strong country now owns all these islands. That is the United States. And he withdraws from the non-interference agreement that had kind of been the default that they inherited from Spain. Uh, He abolishes slavery and he most egregiously establishes a head tax, knowing that this will provoke a fight, but because he kind of wants to. He actually, at the time, writes to Roosevelt explaining this strategy and he, he describes it as one clear-cut lesson. Uh, and he says that that clear-cut lesson will be quite sufficient for them. He, he believes that if he just starts the fight, ends it real quick with his superior military strength, 
uh, then they'll understand that they are not autonomous anymore. Uh, and as a part of that, obviously, as is the norm for the United States and the Philippines, and also on our southern border, he establishes concentration camps. Uh, and he also starts launching raids at the cities, going on those hikes, all sorts of terrible, egregious things. Uh, and this goes on throughout 1903. And up until 1905, when basically there are entire families of Moros uh, in this area who go up to the crater of a dormant volcano in objection to his abolition of slavery and his head taxes. They, they fight for about two years. They realize they can't win, so they go up to the crater of this volcano and they attempt to secede. They, they do so for about for a couple months, and then uh, later in 1906, in like the beginning of 1906, so around March, uh, was an event known as the Budajo Massacre, which Budajo was the volcano that they were hanging out in and had established their settlement and little seceded territory in. And basically, Governor Wood sends an expeditionary force to fight the Moros inside the volcano, and uh, one soldier describes them as falling, quote, like dominoes under the machine gun fire. As a result of the Budajo massacre, 21 Americans die, and between 600 and 1,000 Moros die. Uh, and remember that this was like a settlement with families. So the, when we say 600 to 1,000 Moros, we are not exclusively talking about Moro fighters. We might well be talking about the minority being actual fighters. Yeah, it, it was an absolutely brutal massacre, and it continues the, the pattern that the United States has already set up and will continue to do. They continue their policy of concentration camps and raids for another three years um, until... General John Pershing is made governor of the Moro province, who, you know, at the time was considered to be a little bit kinder than the previous governor would. But he is still a colonizer, and so he is not great. He still kills a fuck ton of people, even though he's considered the friendliest to them. And his period of governorship is marked by continued raids counter-raids, armed bands wandering about the Moro province, and military rule until 1911 when Pershing put out an executive order disarming all the Moros. So to remind you, the particular sect of Islam that they're talking about includes everyone being armed to the teeth all the time. Uh, and basically when they... Hold have, on, hold on. You should, you should uh, just make that a little more clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the particular sect of Islam that they are talking about includes everyone carrying a knife with them at all times as, as a part of, of their religious tradition. And so disarming them was both a cultural and a military blow, uh, and it resulted in between six and 10,000 people fleeing to another volcano known as Budvasa. And Pershing basically is like, okay, fine, do the trying to establish a settlement in a volcano thing, uh, go ahead, you know, if you want, but we want you to come down and just know that we could attack you at any time. 
And he basically waits for them to come back for a couple of years, like a year and a half maybe. And he then launches a surprise attack in 1913, during which he loses 15 men and kills between two and five hundred Moros, uh, including a number of women and children, because once again, this is another situation where they are attacking a volcano that has been turned into a settlement filled with people and families and schools and children, and they're killing hundreds and hundreds indiscriminately. This is, by the way, a major American military hero right here, John Pershing, if you uh, didn't recognize the name. he There's all sorts of things across the country named for him. Less for his service in the American-Philippine War, because no one remembers the American-Philippine War, because, uh, boy, this does not look good for us, but rather for his service in World War I, where we were able to take a helpful tertiary role and turn it into an American victory. Even more than that, like an American, like, we saved the goddamn day. Yeah, an Amer- a story of American heroism. Yeah. So he he will he will later be a part of that, but right now he is just in the middle of massacring <laughs> between two and five hundred people, and the numbers are really bad because they're not really keeping track because they don't really care about these people. And also true today. Also true today, and this would serve as the last major battle. Uh, eventually, during that same year, the United States would bring Moro province under civilian rule, which, as we mentioned earlier, is when you're colonizing something, how you end a war. You transition it from military rule to civilian rule, freeing up John Pershing to go fight in World War One. Yeah, and the civilians can cons- the civilian Americans can you know continue killing people through their police forces as as needed. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But this is the last major holdout of the war. Every little rebellion after that can, you know, be considered an insurrection and doesn't necessarily need to be considered a part of the war because now they're fighting police officers instead of troops. Uh, And this is, uh, while textbooks will frequently tell you that the war ends in 1902, the last declaration of the end of the war happens here in 1913. So we're going to take another break and drink. And also just shout out here to the Moro people for maybe be holding the, what I think might well be the longest anti-colonial, anti-imperial uh, military struggle in history. Basically uh, 400 years or so, uh, or 350 years of holding out successfully against colonial powers. So go Moro. This drinks to you. Base as fuck. And we're back. So that is what we are considering to be the official end of the war. The second longest war next to the current war in Afghanistan. We have no idea how long that motherfucker's gonna last. Probably for the rest of my life. I don't remember a time before it. it. It will last as long as this country does. Which is probably like ten more years. Inshallah. So, the only other really notable thing that happens is that in 1916, the Jones Act passes, which says basically that we're going to give the Philippines some independence eventually, but that won't end up happening until the 1940s. 
I believe 1946. 1946 was exactly what I was going to say, so we are correct. I'm looking this up so we can find out if we're correct. 1946! Hey! We're good at this! The Tidings McDuffie Act. Exactly. We, we only kept control of them for 50 fucking years. I hate us. <laughs> Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? But basically the long-term impact of this war is that it takes the United States and it drags out its colonization four years. Like, it takes them ten different times to declare that the war is finally actually over. When they are gaining one of their first colonies, uh, and, and we'll talk in our next episode about Puerto Rico, uh, which was happening at the same time, but did not last for 15 years, you know? Uh, yeah, this is... This is definitely the, I believe, the first, other than the Civil War, really, uh, the first war the U.S. has done where there was massive internal resistance uh, to the war. Uh, and not because there's even a strong anti-imperialist movement at this point, but because we are really ratcheting up our war crimes, even though they're not war crimes yet, but we're, we're really stepping up our killing of civilians to a new level. And also, it's not Native Americans this time, so, like, we care a little. Like, now that the land isn't stuff that, like, is easily controllable by, like, the white supremacist population, they're much less in invested in defending this. So you're able to actually see uh, anti-imperialist group merge, like, come together to, to fight this. Very ineffectively. Again, this is the. Uh, it might be relevant that like the death knell of political opposition to imperialism is when there starts to be a civil popular movement against it. Utterly toothless. I shouldn't say that because it wasn't tense enough that it certainly affected what the government said. We just, you know, had to lie a little more. Because there was a group of people who were slightly less bloodthirsty. Indeed. And uh, not even just they were exhausted. Like, there was the anti-imperialist segment, but they had basically lost all of the political power that they, that they had previously held at this point. And the imperialists, even though they really like the idea of conquest, become really exhausted by the length and brutality and number of resources spent on this war. Um, and so a lot of historians will credit this war, especially because it was so close to World War I, as one of the reasons why the United States opted not to take any territory for colonization after World War I. There is also a philosophical imperialist kind of subset that arrives from this that says, hey, you know, at first we were really upset about the fact that we couldn't colonize Cuba, but turns out we got our military base there 
and we got control of their foreign policy. We got everything that we wanted out of Cuba, but we didn't have this long ass war. We didn't have to spend all of this money on the war. We didn't have to risk any of these damaging stories or look at any casualties. You know, maybe we should just start going the Cuba route. And so from the exhaustion of this war, you can trace a philosophical bend that ends up informing a lot of colonialism moving forward. The fact that the United States doesn't really take that many colonies after the late 1800s and opts more for financial control over countries without having to provide for their populations uh, is traced by a number of historians back to the events, the length, and the brutality of this war. So is that to the credit of the those who were the death throes of the anti-imperialist movement? Because that's a huge reason for why we were... It, it's laughable to use this word, but milder in Cuba was because in part of the uh, anti-imperialists pulling out the, I forget the name of the amendment. Teller Amendment. Thank you. The Teller Amendment that basically guaranteed that we wouldn't get to straight up annex Cuba. And also just the, the fact that U.S. media had been portraying us as the savior of it didn't have, the Philippines didn't have uh, the hypocrisy element against it as much as Cuba did. I mean, it did from a U.S. foreign policy narrative of us being benevolent saviors, but it didn't have the direct hypocrisy in that these people, you know, leaders had specifically said, we're not here to annex Cuba, we're here to free Cuba. Whereas the Philippines were like, well, those are brown people far away. Exactly, exactly. And it sucks how ironic it was that, that the kind of last breath of the American major anti-imperialist movement was eventually... The model of imperialism. <laughs> ...was eventually the model of imperialism moving forward. And the model of imperialism that we still see today, the way that we overcome countries in Latin America is by and large purely financially and via military bases, but without actually taking them as colonies, because it was just too much work for us to colonize, and we found a way to get all of the benefits without having to provide anything to the people. Yeah, they, they figured out uh, just how much they could do before, and before the American populace said, that's a little much. And the answer was... Everything's short of genocide. But hey, to Americans' credit, the two times we've gone genocidal with our wars, the American public has pretty much hated it. So, you know, we'll do wars of colonialization, but when we get to the genocide portion, we get a little hesitant. So, that's my pro-America statement for the year, probably. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I will say, though, this war was, if not genocidal, something pretty close. And especially, I wanted to talk briefly in our, in our wrap-up section about the death toll and particularly the level of disease 
because I think that's that's a part of the death toll that is um, just as traumatic, but not quite as direct, and so sometimes is is overlooked, uh, especially in the kind of manufacturing consent post hoc that we have related to this war. Yeah, absolutely. I that's one of those things where, like you know, the casualties of war directly, people getting shot, is not super high. But we are directly, like, we requisitioned basically all food and medicine on the island for years towards the army so that the people were starving. We burned the crops and, like, put everyone into concentration camps where they were starving. And as mentioned in previous episodes, vastly more susceptible to disease and people died from disease by the hundreds of thousands. That is every bit. 100% 100% as much the United States' responsibility and the United States Army's responsibility as every person that they shot. These are deaths that would not have happened if we hadn't gone to war to take over this country. Mm-hmm. Like they said, guns, germs, and steel. And that is exactly what we brought. This was actually how most of the victims of the war died were as a result of things like cholera, malaria, dysentery, very, very rinder pest. All of these sound like pumpkin crimes. Also, there was tuberculosis, smallpox, and the literal plague involved. Um, All things that, especially like the modern plague, only shows up generally in people with extremely weak immune systems. uh, Which tells you something about the conditions that we were holding the Philippine people. Yeah, very, very particularly is a really, really difficult disease to get. Um, Daniel Immerwar, uh, in his book, How to Hide an Empire, which is one of my main sources for this episode and in general, says that you basically have to get no nutrients in order to contract it. Like He, he says that you would have to eat milled rice and nothing else for literal months in order to contract this disease. It's like a very specific agricultural disease from that basically only occurs in extremely like sub- subservient and forced into cash crop situation. It's basically a disease that is exclusive to extremely subservient populations and are granted virtually no food allowances. In this case, it's also just that like that's just all we fed them in the concentration camps. Yeah, while Americans were having all of their fruits and veggies and meat shipped in from Australia nearby. After we uh, finished off all of the those things that we had eaten in the Philippines, because literally all of that was requisitioned to the U.S. Army internally. Absolutely, absolutely. It is a testament to how few nutrients these people who were previously you know, largely an agricultural population that had crops and markets and the means of getting nutrients was now struck with. Yeah, you just have to impoverish the diet of a people to an incredible extent for a long period. It just basically speaks, what it is is an extended way to say that we malnutritioned a few hundred thousand people to death by just starving them. Every bit as bad and horrific, as you would imagine, a Nazi concentration camp to be. Absolutely, and a lot of this was happening in concentration camps. 
Another disease that was really prominent because of the concentration camps was malaria because people were moving in and out of zones of malaria. So you have certain areas where folks have, you know, mosquitoes with malaria that are more common than others. Uh, and you have a little bit of resistance built up in certain populations and not others. And not just with malaria, but with a lot of diseases, you have various different people from like thousands of islands being put into concentration camps with brand new diseases or diseases that they're not immune to, uh, with other people who they have brought diseases to that they are not immune to in very unhygienic conditions, being given these diets that are basically starving them to death. Uh, and you, you get diseases so common that Aguinaldo himself literally contracts malaria at one point. So it's not just the people in the concentration camps, but also because people have moved around so frequently, even people who manage to avoid being put in one are interacting with other people and, and experiencing new diseases that they don't have any sort of resistance to. Um, as I mentioned earlier, William Howard Taft, who would later go on to become president, was governor of the province at the time, and his wife, Nellie Taft wrote in her diary that everything that could possibly happen to a country had happened or was happening regarding the Philippines. So it was just an absolute atrocity. The death toll from 1899, so uh, right when the Philippine War of Independence switches to the Philippine-American War, the death toll from that point until 1903 which is like a year after your textbooks would stop and about 10 years before the actual war stops, that death toll for just those four years is estimated at 775,000 people just being murdered either by the guns or the negligence of the United States government. Yeah. It was uh, on the high estimates. About one in six people in Luzon, for instance, uh, who died. Just, you know, it's one of those things that's like difficult. I'd say probably impossible to imagine is one out of every six people dying. Um, I don't know. Yeah, spend a moment with it. You probably, I, I can't fully comprehend it, but something to sit with and, and then think, oh yeah, that's America. That's what we do. That's what we've done since the late 1800s. And then we've turned around and had President Teddy Roosevelt refer to it <laughs> as, quote, the most ultimately righteous of all wars. So. Hey, that dude's on Mount Rushmore, so he can't be wrong. Yeah, I think he did something with a national park once, so he's a good guy. Yeah, he. They made a teddy bear because one time he didn't shoot a, a bear child, he only shot the bear adults. It would have been nice to be told U.S. soldiers to only shoot the adult. Well, no, it still would have been terrible. But good lord, did they also shoot the children? It was it was a travesty, and and it was a travesty that was basically also entirely set up on on behalf of corporations. I have a couple more quotes here. To just people saying the quiet part loud. Of why we got into this? Of why we got into this war, yes. Uh, Senator Albert Belveridge, uh, 
made a statement to the Senate on January 9th, 1900, uh, where he put, the Philippines are ours forever, and just beyond the Philippines are China's illimitable markets. We will neither retreat from either. The Pacific is our ocean. Where shall we turn for customers for our surplus? Geography answers the question. China is our natural customer. The Philippines give us a base at the door of the East. He then goes on to say a lot of racist shit about how they're dealing with Orientals who are not fit for self-government. But I thought that this was a really, really interesting quote because it literally talks about how, oh, well, we have a surplus in our markets. You know, where do we turn? Oh, geography gives us the answer. It's going to be China. And it goes back to that going to a genocidal war, basically for the sake of getting some more markets into the, the quote, base at the door of all the East. It's, it's literally the exact kind of thing that Vladimir Lenin was watching as he was writing imperialism. Some more folks, like, for example, the Postmaster General, who stated when asked about the war that, quote, what we want is a market for our surplus. So, yeah, this was a disgusting war fought entirely for the sake of people who wanted to make money off of it, killed a whole bunch of people, and... Near, like, nearly a million. Like, he killed an insane amount of people. For what amounted to be basically no reason other than racism. Like, if we really get down to it, it's just white supremacy. There's not actually a benefit. You know, as with all of the other places we insist to require for trade with China, uh, not that fucking important. We could just sit across the whole ocean anyway. The other things, there was actually a U.S. Senate commission. It's called the U.S. Senate Committee on, in the Philippines. And uh, it was investigating war crimes in the Philippines by the U.S. They determined, more or less after some very rigged testimony, it was fine. And I just think it's, uh, here's my second graduate school paper I would like to read, would be a comparison of the U.S. Senate Committee in the Philippines with the Philippine War Crimes Commission that we had after World War II, where we sentenced dozens of Japanese military leaders to death and imprisonment for their war crimes against uh, the people of the Philippines and in the Philippine campaigns. That's only 40 years later. All of a sudden, we decided that we cared about them when it was politically convenient for us and good for our propaganda and public image. Yeah, I also have a whole thing about our war crimes commissions. I, I'm a, a big dork for the Nuremberg trials, uh, and I think it's interesting how one of the key facts that got off Admiral Donitz of the German uh, Navy for war crimes was that he got his lawyer to send a letter to Chester A. Nimitz, who was the American admiral in World War II, to basically say that, hey, everything that the Germans did, uh, the German Navy did, in terms of, like, quote-unquote, war crimes, uh, was all stuff the United States Navy did as well. And as a result of that, of Nimitz writing back and going, yeah, that's right. Donitz got a vastly reduced sentence. So, uh, war crimes. 
There's something for people who aren't Americans. And on that cheery note, I think we have exhausted our discussion for the day. So I'm going to bid you adieu and get off to watching anime. We will see you in two weeks when we have our discussion of Frederico. Yet another colony that we still hold to this day, and one which you will hopefully find relevant to modern events. One of the things that I've learned even just in doing these episodes is how relevant everything is to what's still going on. No matter how long ago it is, because it's still the same corrupt, genocidal government doing all of those actions. Yep. They say that if you uh, don't learn from history, it repeats. Is that the saying? I think so, yeah. Something like that. Well, good thing humans never learn. (laughs) I refuse to learn. (laughs) I've never learned anything in my life. And I never intend to. And on that note, stay safe out there. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate You know we've got to find a way To bring some love and get here today Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see If you've made it to this, this is the secret ending. We're gonna, I'm going to be doing a, a brief reading of The White Man's Burden, subtitled The United States and the Philippine Islands. <clears throat> Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best you breed. Go send your sons to exile to serve your captive's need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk in the wild. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. Take up the white man's burden in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror and check the show of pride. By open speech and simple and hundred times made plain, to seek another's profit and work another's gain. Take up the white man's burden and eat his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard, the cry of host the humor. Ah, slowly to the light. Why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight? Take up the white man's burden, have done with childish days, 
the lightly proffered laurel, the easy ungrudged praise, comes now to search your manhood through all the thankless years, cold-edged with dear-brought wisdom, the judgment of your peers. Buck Roger Kipling <laughs>